invite you now to take up that living, powerful Word of God and turn with me for what has been an ongoing study and brings us as well into the new year to Matthew chapter 6, Gospel of Matthew chapter 6, beginning to read as you follow along at verse 9. Pray then. In this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as We also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If only we would pray the way that he told us to. I wonder how much more we would see answers to our prayers. For some time now, we've considered each of the individual petitions of this immortal Lord's Prayer. String the particulars of this prayer together and you have of rather comprehensive expression of all that God actually is. All that he is, is all that you and I could possibly need and so much more. Christ is teaching his disciples, as well as his children today, to pray for those things that the Heavenly Father is already pleased to do for those who come to Him in the name of Jesus. And who better knows our needs than the one who Himself came in flesh and prayed so often to His Father in heaven. The Epistle of Hebrews. By the way, the whole book of Hebrews is really one long sermon. Some of you would say, yes, like long sermons that we get to hear. But that's what Hebrews is. It'll help you in the reading of it sometimes if you recognize that from chapter one through the whole epistle of Hebrews, it's a message. It's a sermon. And it says this of our Savior partway into that sermon at Hebrews five. You listen, we won't turn there. It says in the days of His flesh, that is, our Lord Jesus Christ, he offered up prayers and supplications, listen to this, with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard. Now, he died, but his prayer was answered fully and completely, was it not? Three days later, the scriptures there tell us that his prayers were heard because of his 
piety. Well, that's an old-fashioned word. It means his reverent submission to the Father's will. Not my will, thine be done, I think, is the full expression of the heart of the Lord Jesus whenever he prayed. That Hebrews passage goes on to say, although he was a son, although he was, we know, the son of God, nevertheless, he learned things in the days of his flesh. He learned obedience from the things that he suffered. And having been made perfect, that is, tested and proved to be holy, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. We sometimes forget that Jesus himself felt the necessity of praying and pleading to his Father in heaven. You know that Hebrews also records this, that we have a go-between, we have a mediator in Christ. He is our high priest who can, and I quote, sympathize with our weaknesses. One who has been tempted, that is, tested in all things as we are, yet without sin. But let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. I love that phrase, don't you? It's not a throne of judgment for the redeemed. There is no more condemnation or judgment for the redeemed in Christ. Uh, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. That's synonymous with the place of prayer. So that we may receive what we need. And what we need is mercy and to find grace to help us in our time of need. It is this one, the Lord Jesus, who understands our weakness. You never have to say to the Lord at any time, in any circumstance of your life, Lord, I just don't think you know how I'm feeling. Yes, he does. This one also suffered temptation. This one had, which something I hope that none of you have to have, if you haven't, I hope I never have to, and that is, he suffered temptation even of face-to-face confrontation with Lucifer himself. This one teaches us to pray. And this last petition of the Lord's prayer is this. Verse 13. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so we have been, as it were, with Christ in the school of prayer. And our teacher knows whereof he speaks. He knows something about temptation. And he knows our vulnerabilities, our weaknesses. And though he passed his test 
with flying colors, he also knows that we are not without sin and just how capable we are of falling and failing. That temptation for us, he knows, is a very serious problem. And he knows that Satan is a ferocious and incredibly talented enemy of our souls. If we're going to learn to pray, we do best to learn from our Lord Jesus Christ. Hours before his own cross, you remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he would have welcomed the companionship of those Closest to him. You remember he said to his disciples, what? Pray. Pray with me. But sadly, this is recorded between the first and second prayer session that Christ had with his father. It's in Matthew 26, verse 40. It says, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter. So. You could not keep watch with me for one hour. So much for sweet hour of prayer. But Jesus says, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. And then how graciously he says to us, he knows, he knows the spirit is so willing. But what do you know and what do I know? The flesh is so weak. You know, having read that in a fresh light this week, I, I couldn't help but wonder, and conjecture is not a whole lot to lean upon. We do better if we're just simply looking at what Scripture actually tells us. But I couldn't help but wonder if Peter, who was the one... Jesus specifically addressed about watching and praying and not falling into temptation. I wonder if Peter might not have denied his Lord three times before the rooster crowed if he had prayed instead of slept. Now, we do know this, and it was quite a while ago, 20 chapters ago, that Jesus taught them always to pray do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So, from chapter 6, Peter heard the lesson on prayer. He heard the warning about how easily we are led astray to be tempted and to fail. But he cannot forget part of that prayer was to deliver us from evil. Literally, by the way, in the original Greek of the text, Deliver us from the evil one. That is to say, deliver us from the wiles of the devil. Now, I trust you're beginning to see with me then the vital connection between our struggles with temptation and the necessity of watchful prayer. If you are up against the struggle of your your own sinful desires. Uh, there's that constant drumbeat of the world's march or, or the direct attack of Satan himself. Well, what Jesus is teaching is we haven't got a prayer without prayer. 
That's the lesson of this last petition. Let's underscore this truth again by inspecting uh, the Christian's armor on this battlefield of temptation, where Satan's wiles and ways are legion. I want you to turn with me to another portion of Scripture, uh, the all-too-neglected text of Ephesians chapter 6, if you'd like to find that. If you're using that church Bible, it's on page 1173. Ephesians chapter 6. Come with me to verse 10. Now, I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to read this biblical counsel very quickly because I want to get quickly to what I consider the often missed, nevertheless, if you will, the crescendo of the biblical counsel concerning our spiritual warfare. It comes at the end of the list of all the individual pieces of armor. But so often, I know in my own experience, I've not always remembered the last important line. So let me read quickly and get to it. Finally, he says in verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, Satan and his demons. It is against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, verse 13, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And too many times, having looked at and in some cases studying the various parts of the essential armor of God, we end our reading. But there is a verse 18. This cannot be missed. And by the way, I want you to pick up as I read it four times over in one verse. I want you to look for the word all. A-L-L, okay? With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition, that's prayer again, for all the saints. All the various pieces of the essential armor of God given to us by God's grace to resist in the evil day and the attacks of Satan and the call of our own flesh. But this is essential. All prayer. 
beloved, by now I hope you agree that God has clearly ordained prayer as a chief means of grace, as the way of escape, or if you will, the the way of success from the temptations that plague us. He has ordained prayer as the primary protection of our hearts and our minds against the schemes of the evil one. Now, poor Peter, a second time now this morning, he's going to become an example to us. You remember the first one I gave, he slept instead of watching and praying, as Jesus said. And so he he would fail. He would fail in the hour of his testing. But we do know this. He ultimately survived this vicious attack of the evil one. He survived his own failure. Peter will rise again, but I wonder if you remember why. And I tell you again, it was by the means of prayer. This time, not Peter's praying. He's already failed miserably at that test. But, well, let's just see why it is he rises again. Here's what Jesus previously spoke to this rather undisciplined disciple, Peter. Peter, listen to this. Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. More literally, the text is saying Satan has demanded permission. There's comfortable in that. There's a comfort in that literal translation. It reminds us of the story of Job. Satan comes with with the most incredible and vicious, hateful, murderous attack upon the righteous man, Job. You remember that. But you'll remember that he had to have the permission of God, that God would even allow it. And then on this day, Peter's told a chilling thing. Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. We're all told that. We're informed that Satan, like a roaring lion, goes about seeking who he may tear apart, who he may devour. Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. But this is Jesus. I have prayed. I have prayed that your faith, Peter, would fail not. And then Jesus adds a prophetic word. And when you are, listen to this, restored, strengthen your brothers. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, I have prayed for you so that in the hour of temptation, the rooster will crow and you will not have denied me three times. That's not what it says. Peter does fall prey to fear, to the designs of Satan, but his Savior has prayed that his faith would not ultimately be destroyed. 
that faith will be the ground upon which Peter is raised up again. And in fact, to be made very, very useful in the kingdom there in Acts chapter two, one of the founding stones of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you wonder whether Peter ever fulfilled the assignment that out of his own sin and denial of Christ, having been restored, did he give a message to the rest of us? Well, we won't take the time here, but I'll tell you, there's a blessing for your soul. If you'll just read both of his letters, you read first Peter, you read second Peter, and you'll be reading the counsel of a man who knows what it is to fall bitterly into sin and a man who knows what it is to be restored by the grace of of God. I'm so glad that the scriptures tell me elsewhere that Jesus Christ ever lives. Yes, he rose again on that third day after his literal death, but never to die again. And that he ever lives now to make prayers, to make intercession on our behalf. And in the same way that Jesus prayed for Peter, he prays even now for all of us. Our faith will not fail. Oh, the righteous man, the Bible says, may fall seven times the number of perfection. But the rest of that verse says, but he will rise again. And it's all because we have a Christ who not only died for us, not only rose again to be our living Savior, but to be the one who right now, right now, and for the rest of this day and tomorrow morning, he's praying, he's pleading, he's at his Father's right hand. He is praying for us. So prayer is clearly God's means for us in resisting temptation and the schemes of the devil and beyond our prayers. Oh, thank the Lord. We have the prayers of Christ who has the ear always of his father. Most of you may have heard of G.K. Chesterton, the renowned English author of the 20th century. My, he was known for his wit and wisdom, especially in defense of Christianity. He is still widely quoted in our day. It was in the 1900s, the early 1900s, that the rather prestigious Times of London invited a number of editorials from the great thinkers of the day. And uh, Chesterton was on that request list, that, that mailing list. He was sent the question as other great thinkers of the day were sent. The assigned theme, we are told, was in the form of a single question. Here's what it is. What's wrong with the world? Now, many of the essays were published and uh, Chesterton, we understood, waited until many of the other great thinkers of his day had already been published. Long treatises on what's wrong with the world. And finally... We're told the editors received the correspondence from Chesterton himself. The editor opened the envelope, 
to find one sheet of paper. Up at the top was the question, what is wrong with the world? This is Chesterton's response. Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. You see, Chesterton understood that the problem with the world is the problem of indwelling sin. Even in believers, the doctrine of remaining sin tells us what is all too obvious. We may indeed be redeemed and love to proclaim it, know that our sins are forgiven and will sin beyond number between now and now. And the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ. That principle of of remaining indwelling sin. We all do fail many times in many ways. And if we say we don't, we make God a liar. The Apostle John put it this way when he defined the problem of basic worldliness. He defined for us what, what we mean by worldliness. All that is in the world, that is in the unbelieving world, which is... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, what I see I want, and the boastful, incessant pride of life, John tells us, that's not from God. That is not from the Father. It is from the world. And then, soberly, he says, the world is passing away. And also it's lust. Listen, that's one thing I'm thankful for. I'll be glad. When every aspect of lust is gone from my experience. But for now, the one who by faith, not in a sinless way, but one by faith who does the will of God lives forever. So stay with me for a while longer here. This is so important. When we pray as we were taught, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. There's a certain sense in which we are really saying, Lord, save me from myself. Lord, save us from ourselves. James, in his epistle, again, under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, gives us a a unique inside look at how temptation hooks its victim. It's James 1.14. I'll read it for you. Each one, each one, that's all of us, is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Thus, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Lord, save us from ourselves. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I remember some time ago, our church here uh, hosted some visitors, some out-of-town guests on the Lord's Day. Uh, They became uh, a couple to my wife and I that we've come to have uh, great fellowship with through the years. Uh, They became dear friends. They returned to our uh, church uh, many times in the course of the year, though, Uh, living many miles away from us. And uh, after church, in the beginning of our growing relationship, they asked us if we might join them 
for a dinner out after the service. And it would be, he made it clear, their treat. You need to know that your pastor quickly yielded to that temptation. But my friend and brother on that day, I shall not forget. And we were dealing with this very text at that time. He said, you know, Pastor Jim, I never quite pray it that way. I never pray to the Lord, lead me not into temptation. But I do pray, Lord, don't let me lead myself into temptation. That's that's still a good prayer. But you see, his point was that, that, like so many, he wasn't quite comfortable thinking that God would ever lead any of his children into temptation. Uh, some have struggled with this phrase in the Lord's Prayer. Lord, lead us not into temptation. Temptation to sin like that's something the Lord would ever do. Somehow it just doesn't seem like a right statement at first glance, but of course, it's Jesus teaching us to pray this way. James 1.13 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So how can this be true? On the one hand, while the prayer lead us not into temptation seems to imply that God, in fact, uh, would allow us to face the worst of temptations. Now, let's take the time. uh, We have a few minutes left to wrestle with this. Such effort always yields blessed truth to those who can handle it. Can you can you handle the truth this morning? Remember that this is Jesus teaching on prayer. Certainly he is not suggesting that his father would ever be the source of temptation's power in our lives. The pull of sin is a given in every fallen man, woman, boy and girl. If we are led into temptation, it is our own sinful desires taking us there. To ask that he not lead us where our own lusts want to take us is quite simply and necessarily rightly interpreted as a cry for help. It is a confession of our need. Watch and pray, Jesus said, that you enter not into temptation. How I identify with one of the great hymns of the church happened to be one of my favorite hymns. But one of the verses testifies on my behalf. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And this cry for help. Take my heart. Oh, take and seal it to thy courts above. No wonder Paul would say, we place no confidence in the Flesh. To say in the first century idiom, in which clearly Jesus is teaching in our text, lead me not into temptation is to say, especially in this context, 
lead me away from where I might otherwise go. Save me from myself. You see, the Eastern language of the Bible, this is true both Old and New Testament, often uses the negative like lead me not or lead us not. Or another example would be the Ten Commandments. Have you noticed how many of them begin with thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not do this or that? Now, we Americans, we tend to hear narrowness. We, we tend to hear uh, prohibition, whereas something much more positive is at work in the mind of our creator addressed in this Eastern culture. You remember that Satan's very first stunt went along these lines. Did God say of this tree you may not eat? He says to Eve, right? Notice he did not quote when God said, you see all these trees in this paradise? Bearing all this luscious fruit, it's yours. Take to your fill. Rejoice. And I'll be by in the evening. We'll walk together and have sweet fellowship. What does Satan underscore? He makes the blessing. If Satan can make the extraordinary blessings of a paradise seem like a prohibition, then we ought to be on the watch. What was intended by the negative of this tree, children, you shall not eat, was the more wonderful truth that every fruit-bearing tree in a place called paradise was there to freely enjoy. The use of the negative linguistically is most often, by the way, God's way of calling us Not to prohibition, not to a strict, narrow, legalistic kind of life. He came that we might have life and have it how? More abundantly and lovingly. He says, just don't touch that and don't do this and don't do that. There aren't even that many prohibitions, but they're all positive in terms of the life he would give his children. Jesus is employing the linguistic negative teaching in this petition. Lead us not into temptation can be understood word for word as a prayer to actually be led, to be led positively where? Into paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, we might have to struggle to get our Western minds wrapped around the glory in this particular truth, but I hope that you will. The petition is clearly not charging God with leading us into places where we are likely to sin. The petition is a confession of our need to be led not where we would go, to be not led where we ourselves would go, but to be led in paths of righteousness for his namesake. The very beginning, just before the public ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is recorded in the gospel. Listen to this carefully, that Jesus himself was led 
of the Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, the second person of the Trinity. Our Lord Jesus, in the days of his flesh, was led into the wilderness. And the next phrase you'll read there is to be tempted of the devil. The spirit had a purpose. God, the father understood his son must be not tempted, but tested. The interesting thing is the same word for testing is the same word for tempting. And that the only thing that makes the difference is who is doing what. When God tests his children, it always has one design. Always to strengthen their faith and to lead them on in even bigger exploits for the kingdom. When Satan, the same Greek word, that's why the English authors, especially of the King James, would not use the word tested as often as they would use the word tempted whenever the source was the devil. Because Satan's purpose in the testing was never to strengthen our faith, obviously, but rather to try to destroy it. But how wonderful to know, as we said earlier, Christ has prayed for every one of us and that while we may indeed sin. And aren't you glad to know if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we fall 70 times seven, but we rise again. But it's our faith that remains and proof of that is that we keep repenting. We keep asking forgiveness and we're given the strength to go on to greater works of obedience, perhaps than ever before. I must close. But, you know, this last week for me personally, and for many, marked another anniversary, a significant point in my life. I was only nine years old in 19. 19- 56. This last Tuesday marked 56 years ago when five followers of our Lord Jesus Christ, Nate Saint, Ed McCauley, Peter Fleming, Roger Udarian, and Jim Elliott got down on their knees and prayed to the Lord that he would lead them to reach the unreached tribe of the Alka Indians. You know the story, almost all of you do, and I don't have time to relate all its details. In modern church history, a young boy nine years of age has a father at that time, my dad, who got captivated by the story. And I don't know how he did it, but somehow or another... After the martyrdom, the spearing to death by the Alka Indians of those five men, my dad had resources come together. I remember an old reel-to-reel recording that he had of these men who were actually on their knees praying just prior to that fateful mission. They also did this. They opened their hymnals. They selected a particular hymn. 
And they sang it knowing that their mission was a dangerous one indeed. It's the hymn that I ask you to sing with me 56 years later. We rest on thee.